I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. Jessica Eyre grew up at Temple Beth Avodah, a kind soul with a sweet voice. She started singing in the temple choir as just a little kid. Over time, she became a favorite performer of our temple's most beloved prayers. She's also become an articulate, fascinating woman who shares her sense of what it means to be Jewish, Black, a nurse practitioner, and a voice for peace. Rabbi Hanina said, and this is a quote from the first century, I've learned much from my teachers but I've learned the most from my students. I think after hearing Jessica today, you'll agree she has much to teach us all. Jess, I am just so happy to see you and to be able to share uh, in this opportunity to learn kind of about where you're at and what's going on and I think most of all, I wanted to talk to you because the whole mission of TBA now is to find the people in our congregation that represent somebody or someone special doing very, very cool things. And you do fit that category, all of those categories. So I want to begin with a little recollection. You're probably seven years old and you're Walking into this temple in Newton, do you remember what your first impressions were? Hmm. First of all, I did want to say thank you for having me. Very excited for this podcast. Um, but I remember that I went to a few other temples before. I remember going to the JCC. And I think the first thing that I noticed is you guys didn't have like a ball pit like the JCC, honestly. <laughs> but then after that, um, I went downstairs and I just remembered the classrooms downstairs and looking outside, looking at the playground and the kids all around me and everybody was just sit in a circle, a perfect circle and just seemed so excited to be there. So I think I was very excited to be a part of that. And I think it was probably within my first few weeks, we were in the synagogue and we saw a choir singing. Um, and I think the cantor at that point was Felicia, I want to say. Um, and mm -hmm. I just remember just hearing the music and being really excited and wanting to be a part of that at some point when I was old enough. What place has music had in your life? Wow. <laughs> Definitely a big place. For as long as I can remember, I've been singing and dancing. I remember in preschool, I got the Sing All the Music Award. So apparently I was always singing their heads off over there. I remember my parents put me into a place called the Community Music Center of Boston, where I learned how to play recorder and they taught me rhythm. So ever since I was really little, music has been a huge part of my life, listening to Buddy Holly or James Taylor or somebody I was introduced to, a wide variety of music. And music's actually one of the first reasons that we found out about Temple Beth Avodah. My dad would always read the newspaper and look for local musicals for us to go see together. And he actually saw that y'all were putting on Annie, um, which was one of my favorite movies at the time. So we went to go see it. And I remember he was shocked that you were actually in the show. And I think that's what led him to bring me there to actually be a part of the community um, and the congregation because we were very interested that you were just so 
open to being with the community. And I think it's very different than the rabbis that people in older generations, and I know my father had grown up with. So he was very impressed by that. So that's actually one of the first reasons that we came. I'm lucky about that. That's for sure. Uh, What was your Jewish upbringing like? Could you tell us a little bit about that and the interesting family that you sprout from? Absolutely. So uh, my dad was raised Jewish and my mom immigrated from Haiti when she was a teenager um, and she was brought up Christian, actually. I remember celebrating Christmas and Hanukkah. I got Purim. I got Easter. I got everything, you know. So growing up Jewish for me was really fun. I loved it. I saw it as good presents, good food, good people, honestly. And I really enjoyed learning about it in Sunday school and I saw everything as a story, really, like everything had a reason behind it. I think one thing that was a little bit difficult for me is I remember like I would go to school and I'd be like, I'm Christian and Jewish. And people were like, well, you can't do that. You can't be that. And then as I got older, I just saw that there were so many similarities through the religions, you know? So I think that it's possible. And I think it's also possible to be um, culturally Jewish as well. I also do see it as a culture besides just a religion. Say more about that. I guess when I was younger, it was great. You know, as I said, presents, Christmas, I saw it as literally just presents and food and family. But as I got older, I, people just thought that I was contradicting myself because there are differences in the two religions, obviously. But that's when I always saw it more as spiritual. Like I know there's a God and I believe in God and I'm going to pray and all of that stuff. And that's how I saw so many similarities and I didn't understand how other people couldn't see it. Like I even remember being in the temple and somebody was like, well, you don't talk like a Jewish person talks. And I was like, well, well, how does a Jewish person talk? Tell me. Like I was very curious. And like, I wish that I said that at that point, now that I'm older in retrospect, I'm like, I wish I spoke up and I said something, but I didn't know at the point at the time, I didn't know that that was a weird thing to say. Well, clearly the question has been something that sticks in your mind. What was that question all about? I mean, is it the obvious sort of race kind of thing? Or what do you think? I remember in the conversation, I said something like, thank God. And I feel like that's something very natural to say, like, thank God, thank you, God. And we even say that when we're praying. So in my head, I'm like, I'm saying it in English. I'm not saying it in Hebrew. So it's like, is that the loss in translation? And very clearly, I'm not white. There's something else to me. So maybe that's also where it came from. But it definitely did take me by surprise, you know, um, just to judge like somebody by the way that they're speaking, especially when they have like the same core values as you. To me, there's many different ways to get to the same, to get to the same end goal, you know, so you may pray in Hebrew, but I can pray in English and that's what works for me. You sound very sure of yourself. Has that always been part of who you are? It took me a while to get here. I'm going to be very honest. During high school, I definitely had some trouble finding myself. And I think that definitely showed while I was at Temple, you know, my parents were going through a divorce. And then all of a sudden, when my little sister was born, when I was 17, I think everything just sort of clicked to me. I was like, I need to be a role model. I need to get everything together. I need to figure out what I want and who I am as a person. So I really took some time um, for myself and I really explored spirituality. And I even like took a step back from Judaism for a little bit to really figure out like what I truly want and what I truly believe and to decide what I want versus what other people said. As I said before, people were like, you can't be Jewish and Christian at the same time. So I need to be like, Jessica, what do you think? What can you be? And I think that just ended up with me now being a very spiritual person in general. And I do still consider myself Jewish. Absolutely. But 
I think you more so see the cultural side of Judaism when you talk to me. You know, it's interesting because clearly, like so much in our culture right now, there is this sense of fluidity that um, a generation ago was only in relationship to, you know, water, as opposed to people's gender, people's take on race, people's take on religion. And so what you're expressing is a very, I think, contemporary take on the permission that we have by virtue of our humanity to say the person that defines me is me and not the people around me. Absolutely. Which is a pretty bold thing to to say and do even even now, obviously, in this culture as well, there are people that would be loath to allow us to in any way venture from anything that's otherwise status quo. In that vein, Jess, you early on were up on the Bema in a choir. You saw that choir and then you you were in it. You know, I don't know how long it took you to grab a solo, but my, my recollection was not long. And your voice, which in those days was just like a cute little girl voice, a good voice, but a cute little girl voice, nonetheless, drew attention. People said, who is that kid? But of course, there's another part of that, right? Who is that kid? There are all these white kids up there. I am just so curious what that felt like for you growing up. Tell us your Jewish story as a black woman in a congregation that is like 97.3% Caucasian. When I first came to the temple, I had no idea. Like I, I did not know I was different at all, not in the slightest. The most difference I saw was I drove 20 minutes to get to temple, whereas other people drove five. You know, everybody was from like Newton and Needham. They knew each other, maybe even some Brookline. Um, so that's all the difference I saw. And then as I got older, I want to say middle school, I started to notice that I wasn't connecting with the kids as much. I also grew up an only child for most of my life for 17 years. So for a midrashah, we'd have like tables when we'd eat dinner. I'd always sit right next to the teachers and I'd listen into their conversations because that's just where I felt comfortable. And I would sit by myself and I like found comfort in sitting by myself for whatever reason. So I definitely knew I was different then. And then as time went on, I started to get friends and I was like, you know what? Like I want, I want people to like me. I'm going to become this big personality. I just wanted to be not popular, but like be well-liked, be well-received. And I think in early high school and lower middle um, and later middle school, um, I think I played too much into that, into being somebody who I wasn't because I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to assimilate. I didn't, I didn't want people to see me as different whatsoever. And I think I just played too far into that at a certain point, which is, um, I believe in 11th grade, I took a year off um, because I just wanted to take that year off to truly find myself and go back to who I was. I wasn't proud of the person that I was during that time, truly. There are a lot of factors that go into that. I think we all struggle with difficult times during our teenage years, but I think a huge part of that was my race and trying to fit in and conform. And then once I came back for my senior year, I kind of felt like I was a different person. You know, I was quieter. Um, I kept more to myself because I think I was still trying to figure out the balance of how to be who I want to be without stepping on anybody's toes, if that makes any sense. Sure. And then once I got to college, I was like, I don't want anything to do with Judaism because I had trouble finding myself there. So 
I heard about Birthright and I went to the table and they're like, this is a free trip to Israel. And I was like, yeah, I'll think about it. Who knows? And then when they contacted me, I was like, nope, I have a headache. Don't want to go. And then I think it was my last semester of freshman year. School was about to end and I got an email and I was super stressed with finals. And they were like, come to Israel. It'll be fun. And I was like, you know what? I'm going. And ever since that trip, I feel like I've reconnected with my Jewish roots, my Jewish spirituality. Um, I met my best friend on that trip. Like truly, like for me, um, Judaism really brought me back to who I was, I feel like, especially in college. Jessica, what exactly, could you explain what birthright is? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's a 10 day free trip for people who either have a Jewish parent or grandparent. And in those 10 days, you get to travel all over the country of Israel. You have five Israeli soldiers who come on the trip with you. So you get to really learn about what it means to live in Israel for them, what it means to be part of the IDF. And you you really get to bond and learn a lot about your culture. You try shawarma, you try falafel, you get to try everything. You get to float in the Dead Sea. You get to have really deep conversations about Judaism and what it means to be alive. So I honestly think it's one of the best experiences you can have and it's free. So it's kind of a no brainer to me. (laughs) And you've ended up uh, not having just been a participant, but then actually working for Birthright. How many times have you been in Israel? Yes. So I went once in high school with the temple. So I think I was in 10th grade. And then I went once for birthright. And then I think that following winter after birthright, um, I went back for something called the David Project, which is a program where they teach about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So they choose five Jewish interns, and then they choose 25 campus representatives from a bunch of different cultures and religions to come and learn about Israel and so that they can also connect with not only Israel and Judaism, but they can connect with Israel through their cultures and through what they've read in their in the Bible or their other religious texts that they do read. I'm curious about your take, given your exquisite sensitivity to issues of race and marginalized communities. And mentioning that when you did co-lead or lead these groups uh, to Israel, that you went to the West Bank, that you have an understanding of the Palestinian population. How does that all coalesce with your general sense of Israel as a whole, your sense of a love of Israel, a concern about Israel? I absolutely still have so much love for Israel, but I think there's two sides to every story. There's mistakes that have been made both on both sides. So for me, it's I personally can't take a side. I, I really cannot. I consider myself very neutral in this whole situation. Um, but it makes me feel for both sides absolutely hearing everything that has gone down. Um, and I think that's all we were really trying to do when we brought the students over there to learn more about the situation, just see that it's not black and white and it will never be black and white. I feel like after the first day, you're like, oh, I'm totally on Israel's side. Second day, oh, I'm totally on Palestine's side. And then like you, by the end, you just don't know. And you're just like, I see people. I want us to coexist. I want us to be happy. A lot easier said than done. 
but that's just how I feel. You know, I think sure. we're both misunderstood on both sides. And it just, I think it just says a lot about humanity. Like everybody's just understood and wants to be understood. That's human nature. That's what we all want. So hopefully soon we will find a resolution. Well, certainly, as uh, you said earlier, it really is about learning. It's about listening to stories and being willing to make room in your head for more than one narrative because we're surrounded by multiple narratives. I wonder how we, how the temple, how your community acknowledged your race. What did we do? What did we miss? What could we have done better? And, and right, even as I ask you this question, I realize I fall into that white guy trap of asking you because you are a person of color to kind of explain some vast social phenomenon. So I, I want to try to avoid that and just be specific about it, which was the temple as an institution of which your family was and is still a part. How did you feel connected to, related to, if at all, as a black young woman? I don't think my race was ever really addressed, to be honest. And I think we are living in a little bit of a different time period and now where we're bringing more attention to race. So when I was that age, I don't think I would have even been able to tell y'all to like address my race. I didn't know that it should be addressed. And I think now that I'm getting older, I'm like, you know what, maybe it would have been nice if I saw a black girl in the books of, of like celebrating Hanukkah or Purim, but there also needs to be a market for that as well. So I think that we need to work hard to find those books. But I think it all begins with educating and it begins with educating the youth. I know at Hillel, I took um, an Israeli cooking class at BU and it taught us these different Jewish cultures and like the Uzbeki Jews and the Ethiopian Jews. And we'd cook things from all of their different cultures. And it was fantastic. And I think incorporating something like that would be fantastic for the younger families at the temple and like getting them to cook that at home. So they understand that being Jewish isn't just somebody from Newton. It's not just somebody from Needham. It's just not somebody, it's not just somebody who's white. Jews come in all shapes, colors, sizes, everything, honestly. And I think that's the most important thing to do. I appreciate that. That's one of the things that in a majority culture is not often understood, which is the impact for a child, something as basic, as fundamental as a book with a picture of a person that looks like you, a person who comes and talks to the class, who tells a story, just some kind of recognition of the enormous multicultural riches of Judaism itself and of Jewish community. For sure. So you spent this time in Israel. What about that trip turned you in, either turned you in a new direction or returned you to where you had been or where you wanted to be? I think there's a few things that played into it. I think just the feeling of being in Israel and just connecting with a group of like-minded individuals. I don't really think anything can beat that. It was also a BU halal trip, which really helped because I was with my peers. And then I think the leader of the trip, his name is Hanan. He was just a very spiritual man. And I really enjoyed talking to him and his family. And I remember us going over a family's house that was originally from Boston who made Aliyah and moved to Israel um, and just being talking with them about their experience and how they consider themselves spiritually Jewish. And I was like, well, maybe that's a thing. Maybe that's something that I can do. And I just, I don't know. I just felt very at home. And we talked about some serious issues and about prejudice against Jewish people. And they even tied it into racism 
and what a Jew looks like. And they explained that a Jew can be anything. Like, you can't tell me that like a Jew only has blonde hair or dark hair, curly hair, anything, you know? So it just made me feel more at home. Well, certainly. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the things if when one visits Israel, I always say that something, I don't know if we've actually ever taken the time when we've done tours because we're so busy, but it's, it would be a really cool thing just to uh, go to the central bus station in Tel Aviv and just sit and watch the people that are uh, uh, coming uh, in or out um, because the, the mix of uh, ethnic origin and race uh, is really staggering. I mean, you, you really, you go, oh my God, like are all these, or let's say are 85% of these people Jewish because it's a crazy mix of humanity. Absolutely. And like, I feel like I, I didn't feel like I stood out at all there. Like I felt like I fit in perfectly. You couldn't look at me and say like, you're American, you're black, you're this, you're that. I was just Jessica there and it was fantastic. And that's all I wanted to be. Just see me for who I am, not the color of my skin, not my religion. I'm just Jessica. How is that sense of wholeness that you're describing, how does that play out now for you? I feel like it's all just about living your truth. And that's all I'm trying to do at this point. Try to be true to myself and I think that that all just starts with like grounding yourself every morning and thinking about who you want to be, what you want to get done, acknowledging things that you've done wrong or you may not be so proud of and being like, how can we move forward from here? And I think for me, what's really helped is like gratitude journaling, as corny as it sounds, like saying, I'm thankful for this today. I want to do this. And it doesn't need to be a task list. Like I want to do my homework or, but like more just like, I want to put out into this world happiness and stuff like that. You know, I just want to feel whole today, stuff like that. <laughs> I think that's pretty spectacularly uh, beautiful, particularly as it's part of your self-acknowledged desire to create a kind of uh, spiritual life. So how, how um, religious are you about filling out your, uh, your journal? Are you a daily come hell or high water journal enterer or are you more kind of when you have the time? I, w I would like to think I'm pretty good. I have this thing called the five minute journal. So it's, it's pretty quick. Um, and then if I know, especially if I'm having a particularly difficult day or something that I want to happen, I definitely will like write it down. You know, I'm a huge believer in like positive affirmations, speaking things into existence. So where did you learn this stuff? Where did I learn this stuff? That's a great question. I mean, when I was younger, I'd write some pretty wild journal entries when I was like seven. So we could say it started there. Um, but as I got older, I think I just realized that that was a good way to cope with anything that's really going on, especially with the stress of school. I think I started this summer. Um, I've been applying to like graduate schools and um, I think I just needed to like take a step back and know that, you know, everything's going to work out and everything's going to be okay. And I felt like speaking it into the world made it come back to me. And hopefully it worked. I think it worked. <laughs> well, we're here talking and you sound pretty good to me. I want to circle back a bit to the Israel conversation and ask you about how connected you feel to Israel now. Well, for, well I guess, first of all, what was the aftermath of your birthright experience? What did it, how did it engage you? Did it change what you did when you got back home? And then where are you at when you look, read about 
Israel now? Yeah. So um, as soon as I came back from Israel, um, I was offered a job with Birthright, being a campus outreach coordinator for um, BU. So what I do, well, what I did, I don't do it now. (laughs) But what I did was I would create events to gain interest in people going on the Birthright trip. And I explained to people my experience, how I told people how it's like a 10 day trip where you get so close to these people, even if you don't consider yourself Jewish or like just your parents Jewish, it's just such a cultural experience. And it's, I think it's very important to learn about your culture and where you came from. And you just learn so much on the trip and you get so close to people. So for example, um, I would set up a table in the middle of campus during passing period. um, And I would like hand out free candy to people obviously very pre-COVID stuff, Mm. Um, and then write down their name on the list, ask if they're Jewish, ask if they're interested, take them out to some coffee, and just try to get them to go on the trip and explain to them how I did not want to go at all, but like genuinely like shaped my whole college career. And then from there, I got the opportunity to help lead a trip through the David Project, So um, I was one of five Jewish interns um, showing people from many different cultures around Israeli and Palestinian territories. So we had some really deep, serious conversations in hearing both sides of the conflict. And that was very interesting. And I feel like you grow really close with those people. Many of them were um, either Christian or Muslim. And there's so many amazing things in Israel and Jerusalem that relates to their religion. So it's interesting to see it from their perspective as well. Things that like I had never paid attention to where they were crying at those places. So yeah, it was awesome. (laughs) So it really, not only did you get a best friend, but it really did transform your life uh, for the remainder of your time as an undergraduate. Absolutely. Yeah. I even um, got the opportunity to lead service trips, um, went to Brazil, almost went to Argentina, but then COVID happened. Um, But yeah, Met so many amazing people, many amazing friends, and I'm thankful. I feel like I walked, I went into birthright at the exact right time, honestly. Yeah, one of my favorite buildings on campus when I was there, so. Love it. You mentioned uh, COVID, and it has been one extraordinary ride uh, for, I think, pretty much every human being in some way or another. I'm wondering... For you, Jess, for this past year, what are the ways in which COVID has squished you, uh, not in a kind way? And then what is a way you feel like you've learned something about yourself or about the world you're living in um, now at this, pretty much this one year point? For sure. So um, something that I feel like I learned even more about than I knew before were the racial inequalities in healthcare, which is something that I'm deeply passionate about. Um, and people just not getting the quality of care due to their color, the color of their skin, their socioeconomic status, etc. So that has made me even more excited to go into the healthcare field. Absolutely. So yeah, it's just, it's sad to hear about and I just want to be a part of the change. It's one of those things where we, all we can do is educate and be the change that we want to see. On the flip side, I do believe that COVID has given me more time with my family. 
um, and to go back to like old school family values of really just like playing board games, having family dinners together. I feel like we can get so busy in our lives and be so consumed about like, oh, I have a meeting here. I have to do homework here, but I have to talk to my friends here. I have to take a nap here. But I'm just home and I'm here for it. I'm cooking with my family, relaxing with my family, really just spending quality time. And so I'm very, very thankful for that. Absolutely. And it is interesting how the things that as we get older, we tend to lose track of still remain some of the most nurturing. Uh, We find that out. We've certainly found out during this past year that those simple things are the absolute foundation of our souls. Sure. Jess, I, I heard, you know, your, your passion as it relates to the true inequity of healthcare for people of color and for people in poverty in, in this country. Was there any particular story or moment or event where you kind of hit your head and said, oh my God, this is, this is horrible. Anything particular sort of push you over into that? Absolutely. So when I was in 11th grade, my mom got pregnant with my sister. And coincidentally, I was taking anatomy and physiology where we were doing a baby journal, where we, which was where we would track the week by week development of a fetus. So my mom's pregnancy actually matched up exactly with that pregnancy journal. Good homework. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so during that time, I was really lucky. My mom let me name my sister, um, gave me the job of cutting the umbilical cord. So I walked into that hospital excited. I was ready to go. I had seen the birthing videos in anatomy and physiology. I was like, I got this. Y'all can step to the side. I'm here to cut the umbilical cord. <laughs> But when we got there, unfortunately, it was very, very different than what I had seen in anatomy and physiology class. So a little bit of background, my mom immigrated from Haiti when she was in a teenager somewhere in there. She's now a family nurse practitioner. So she is educated in the medical field. She used to work at this hospital. So at this hospital, she was repeatedly refused pain medications. She was told to stop pressing the nurse call button. They didn't believe her when she said my sister was crowning. They And then when they realized that my sister was actually like crowning coming out, it was too late to give her the epidural that she had like requested numerous times. She made it very clear that she wanted it. So she was wheeled into the emergency room. I'm not sorry, the emergency operating room because there were no rooms available for her. And my sister was born. Luckily, she was okay when she was born. But having a child is like one of the most momentous occasions in your life. And nobody should feel like they're not being listened to. It's a, it's a very scary time. Um, and, you know, I can never get the look of fear out of my mother's eyes, you know, when I was like looking over her and she was giving birth to my sister. Definitely a scary time for me as well. And I just don't want anybody to ever feel like that. I think of my mother and she speaks perfect English. She's educated in the medical field. But what about somebody who doesn't speak English? What about somebody who has nobody to advocate for them? So that's what I feel like really pushed me to even want to go into the medical field because I was like, I want to put a stop to this and help to educate people. It's an amazing story. I, you know, and I was going to ask you, but you've answered it just in the telling of the story, uh, why you think is it's the case that uh, women of color uh, are disproportionately found to have a major complications and during uh, birthing and not to mention actually dying in the hospital during childbirth. And just what you've described now in your mother's situation, 
the way that she was not listened to, dismissed out of hand, is a profound indicator of how easily uh, things go wrong when people are not acknowledged for their humanity, but as problems to solve. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was actually um, doing a project on it last semester at school about um, the birthing experience for women in marginalized communities. And it was found that there are also, if you have a lower socioeconomic status, you will also deal with similar issues if you're on welfare, um, government assistance. So it's something that we definitely need to pay attention to. And there's many microaggressions um, in the hospital setting as well. And that's one of the places that people should feel the most safe. They're supposed to be there to help you. So we don't want to make people want to be afraid of going to the hospital or anything like that. Absolutely. And what you're describing is, is exactly the situation and that uh, sometimes it's hard for people of privilege to understand, like, why would you be afraid? That, like, oh, obviously you have to go to the hospital. Like, what, what are you worried about? And you're describing a situation where it's a real legacy of abuse and ignorance and it has dire, it still has dire consequences, including, I think, fear in various parts of the black community that are so suspicious of vaccination and are, you know, it, because they've seen too many times that their families, their ancestors, or just the stories in the community of people who have been really abused by the uh, medical establishment, um, which is so hard so hard from the outside to even begin to understand. Absolutely. I think that it's part of it. The responsibility does fall on the medical community to show them that it is now safer, like after the Tuskegee experiments, after Henrietta Lacks and all of those, these things that caused so much, much mistrust. And there, I'm sure there's many others that we don't even know of that didn't even make the news that people have dealt with in their family. So I understand why there is so much medical mistrust. But as I said, it is our responsibility or the people in the medical field's responsibility to reverse this, to educate their workers. You know, this is the time. Amen. Look, I, I think the issue of education uh, is itself a, a huge part of this moving forward in terms of anti-racism and in terms of curing inequities that we uh, see that have been part of, as we just described, uh, the medical establishment and people who have suffered from that institution's kind of uh, neglect. So in terms of teaching time, teaching periods, certainly the George Floyd murder and the subsequent uh, rise of Black Lives Matter has really been culturally and politically uh, a massive disruption in the American story. And I'm wondering what that period right after uh, George Floyd was murdered through Black Lives Matter, through the movement, through the uh, demonstrations in Boston, et cetera, just how you experienced it uh, on a college campus. Although I guess you weren't in session, you weren't in school then, but still a sort of part of a university community? I think it was definitely a scary time for anybody in the black community. Um, you're concerned. You see us, you see like people that could be your brother, your sister passing away um, at the hands of cops or 
other people that just don't understand exactly um, the weight of racism, I guess. One thing that particularly bothered me were the people that I saw in high school that would be like, I'm scared of black guys and or like they had like these like sort of like microaggressions were posting these black squares on their screen. And to me, it was sort of like, are you just doing this to fit in? Is this a trend for you? Um, and so that's something or abs- if they grew, absolutely. I'm, I'm so for that. I believe we can all change. I believe that. But it, it was very interesting to me to see that going on. And I think that was definitely something that bothered me. And then at college, I'm lucky enough to go to a school. I think we're pretty liberal. We're a very, very open campus. The support that I saw there was fantastic. A lot of rallies um, and things that I want to see. We're also lucky enough to live in Boston, which I do consider to be a pretty open and accepting place. And I'm very, very proud to live here and to be a part of this community. So in the, in the midst of all this, your dad's white. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, during the George Floyd stuff, uh, the, the, the various demonstrations and after his murder and the kind of publicity it got, the kind of electricity that was just shot through this country, really, and actually through the world, on a personal level, does that make the relationship difficult? How does that, how does that work? Is it an issue? I would say absolutely not. My father is like the best person ever. I love him with all my heart. Um, he's always just wants to listen, I guess, and wants to learn. And he's open if he says something wrong to like be willing to change it. Um, but he's also like lived with me for a very long time. So I think he's had a lot of time. Um, he also has worked in the Boston public schools. So he's very, he's worked with many different races, ethnicities, and backgrounds. So I don't think it's ever put a strain on our relationship. And I don't think I've even ever had to be like, hey, it's not cool to say that. I've never really had to have that conversation because I think he mm. already knows. But it's really cool that I can have conversations, different conversations with him about like different terms we should be using versus not using. Like, for example, my father and I had a conversation about no longer using the word minority as it makes it sound like these communities are minor and lesser than other communities when that is something that they are definitely not. So now we are leaning towards using the word marginalized or marginalized communities or people of color. That's also a good one. I appreciate knowing that because I used it a little while ago. Oh, see, I didn't even notice. See, it's like you need to start like adjusting. (laughs) It takes a while. We all have a lot of learning to do. Even as a person of color, I still have learning to do. Um, It's all about educating yourself and trying to be better. And I think that that's one of the best ways to combat this issue. Nobody reacts well to being like, to having somebody yell at them and be like, that's not the way you do it. You did it wrong because then they're going to get defensive. Instead, you should be, I think it's better just be like, hey, maybe we should use this word instead. And this is why I understand why you said this. You know, nobody wants to feel attacked. And I think that's the best way to move forward the cause of being anti-racist. This has been, uh, this, this is so, this is so great. I, I am, I'm really enjoying this conversation with you, Jess. And I, I really appreciate the notion that, you know, there's a, uh, a, a famous saying, uh, from Rashi says, you know, who said, um, I've learned a lot from my teachers, but I've learned the most from my students. And in talking to you today, I really do feel that and, and feel blessed that you've Agreed to be part of this. I think we were all under the impression at a certain point that you were destined for music, that you were going to become a professional musician. Was that just sort of our our fantasies about what you were doing? Had you thought about 
music professionally? And, and if you did, what changed your direction? And if not, well, you know, so much for my thoughts about you becoming sort of chanteuse. But uh, so what's the story on that? For sure. So I actually originally went to Boston University. I got a scholarship to sing classically. Um, so that's like art song aria, which most people probably think of as opera. Um, and then in my head, I was like, well, I'm going to do that on a pre-med track, which did not work. I, I would just like to make that very, very clear. Um, I would have been in school for like five years. Um, but I think what really changed is I walked Undergrad. in. Undergrad. Yeah. <laughs> so I walked into class on the first day and I was the quietest one in the class. I do not consider myself a quiet person, but like everyone was so incredibly dramatic. And I was like, I feel so out of place right now. This is not where I'm supposed to be, but I still singing still definitely my passion, but I think healthcare is also a calling for me. So I still get to sing all the time. I sing a temple. I always love singing there. Um, and then I always find myself when I'm getting stressed or studying, I'll put on like a karaoke track and I'll sing along for fun because that's just how I deal with my stress. <laughs> you uh, slipped in there that you ended up uh, going from a music uh, major and a med school minor that you've ended up uh, in the healthcare, you're aiming towards a healthcare profession. So what exactly are you aiming at and why? Absolutely. So right now, um, I'm a health science major um, studying public health. Yes, that's what I'm doing. Um, I always forget. <laughs> and then, um, right now, I actually just signed on to, I think maybe that's what you call it, signed on to a grad school. So I'm going to be attending Boston College um, to be a nurse practitioner. I haven't decided which field yet. So I'm lucky enough where I have a year and a half to get my nursing degree, a master's in nursing. And then I have some time to figure out what I want my actual um, focus to be once I become a nurse practitioner. So um, I will probably make that decision after some clinical experience. But one thing that I really liked about being a nurse practitioner is one of my main things I want to have a rapport with my patients. I want them to know who I am. I want them to feel comfortable talking to me about all their problems. And I want to have a lot of time with them. So I think the best way that I would be able to do that is to be a nurse practitioner because I feel like I will be able to have more time with the patients. Um, on top of that, I truly believe in a work-life balance for me to be good at what I do. I believe that I also need to be happy outside of work. So I believe that there needs to be a nice little balance there so I can be happy and be the best at practicing what I can. Well, first, mazel tov on your uh, acceptance into the BC program. I know it's very competitive and uh, I think they made a really great choice. Was there anything else? And your mom is also a nurse practitioner, yes? Yes, she So is. there's probably a little bit of emulation there as well. Is there anything else about being an MP that people you don't think necessarily know about the profession that you think would be a good idea for us to find out about? A good thing for people to know is that they are advanced practice nurses. So I know a lot of times when people are like, um, go into a doctor's office and they see an NP, they're like, no, I want to be seen by a doctor. Um, I think it's important to know that um, an NP can prescribe you medicine um, and they are also very highly trained. Yes, they we're not in school for as long as a doctor, but I think it's important to also trust them with your health care. I know I've heard a lot of stories about patients saying that they don't want to be seen by the NP, but I say give the NP a chance. They will do a good job, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> I don't know them all personally. <laughs> well, as the father of an MP, uh, I heartily uh, endorse uh, your statement about that and about the seriousness uh, with which 
and please uh, take their work and their studies and their continuing pursuit of learning after receiving the the licensure. Definitely. Jess, what's your uh, what's your favorite uh, song in the temple? What what's the song you've most enjoyed singing? Oof. I feel like Shalom Rav is a is a bop, a bop and a half. Hashki Venu, that's a good one. A lot of different mm-hmm. versions of both of those. Um, and then I'm blanking Debbie Friedman. I'm blanking on which song she has that I really like. Um yeah, she has so many. It's true. Shabera, is that one? No, that's not hers. I'm blanking. Shabera, yeah. It is? Yeah. Okay, great. That's the one. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the one. Your interest in music, uh, you said from the time you were a little, little kid was always very high, that you, you loved music. And you've obviously been around Jewish music a lot, both formally learning it for temple choir and for services, but also in terms of being involved with birthright, there's a, Israel is a huge market for music and really different kinds of music. What's your take on Jewish music? Is there a particular composer that you like or style of music? Yeah, I'm not the best at naming the different composers um, of Jewish music. I just know that I like it. Um, But I think, honestly, I think think it's one of the styles that I sound the best singing. I don't know if it's because I connect to it or if it's because I grew up with it. There's just something about it. I feel like when I'm singing like Debbie Friedman or something like that, that's probably when I'm sounding my best. Some of my best shower concerts come from Judaic music, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, okay. So you, you mentioned it in that uh, perhaps the the best metier for showing off your voice because it's followed by your heart is Jewish music. So Jess, would you, for your rabbi here, would you just sing me a little bit of Hashki Venu? <laughs> All right, let's, let's see what we got today. Hashki <laughs> Venu Adonai Eloheinu l'shalom, v'hamideinu shomreinu, l'chaim, l'chaim. I couldn't tell if that was good or not. <laughs> I'll be honest. Oh, I can tell. It was beautiful. Okay. Just okay. beautiful. <laughs> and it just completely evokes... All the feelings that we have. Thank you for the tune, Jess. Thank you for, thank you for being you. Well, you've, you certainly fill the space when you sing. I'll tell you, it's one of our uh, great blessings that you keep coming back. It's like, oh my God, she's still, we still get a chance to hear her. And, and uh, I think I described you earlier as this uh, sweet little skinny girl um, with a little voice who would have a solo to to your presence now where you have this uh, trained and spectacular voice. And uh, there are people who, you know, there are certain prayers uh, in the liturgy that, oh, I, I want to hear that. I want to hear that Jess sing this one, you know, so yeah. you have made such an impression over the years at the temple. There is something when you sing Hashkei Menu that you can see, as I'm sure you do, the congregation go through this really interesting transformative experience with the song and that uh, by the end, 
the, the wish of the prayer, which really is to find shelter and peace and love, it comes across so clearly and beautifully. And the only way that can happen is not just because of the quality of your voice, but really the quality of your character. And I am so glad you're going to be at BC because it means we can still, you're still in driving distance to the temple. So uh, we uh, can't wait to keep listening to you and being inspired by you. Uh, And not just by your music, but really just by the stories that you've told us about your life and about your commitment to your work and to your family and to the Jewish people and to uh, the world and to the community in which you live. So with all of that, it is such an honor to be with you. And I, I wish for you much uh, health and safety. And we're looking forward to you continuing to emerge as a real presence in the world. So thanks for joining us on TBA now, Jess. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I look forward to seeing everybody in the congregation again soon. Amen. (laughs) Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.